0: Welcome into this episode of Keon Sports, the Keon Sports Podcast. Our guest tonight, wrestling legend, announcer, premier, Ken Resnick. You remember him from the AWA, the WWF, then years later, the AWF. We're going to talk about all of it today. So sit tight, put your feet up, and grab something cold to drink. Up now is Ken Resnick. On the hotline now with Keon Sports is Ken Resnick. Ken, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Vince.
1: I'm glad to be here. I appreciate the invitation.
0: Oh, absolutely. So I wanted to to ask, I know you're residing in uh, Minnesota now, but where did you grow up, and what sports figures did you follow growing up? Who were some of your favorite teams and players?
1: Uh, I actually grew up... Right in Minneapolis. Um, So my my favorite teams, you know, the first pro teams that came here, uh, Minnesota Twins and the Minnesota Vikings. In fact, Vince, the the first job I ever had, I was 15 years old, and I sold hot dogs at the old Mets Stadium uh, where the Twins and Vikings played. And uh, I was extremely lucky that when I was about 11 years old, uh, I had the chance to meet Harmon Killebrew. Uh, and through a mutual friend, a uh, uh, family friend who was a good friend of Harmon's, we kind of stayed in touch. Uh, so he was really one of my first, you know, sports idols, sports heroes. Uh, in fact, the first time I met him, uh, he told me that uh, his son's name was Ken. Uh, so we we had a little bit of a, a connection but the Twins and Vikings were my my first real um you know teams that that I followed and probably along with Harmon growing up um Johnny Unitas, Mickey Mantle and and <clears throat> Muhammad Ali and um I was lucky enough uh throughout my career I was able to to meet all of them. Uh so those were really my my sports heroes i guess
0: that's pretty unique you know a lot of times um you we don't always get that chance i know i've had uh i've been blessed to work with jim tomey who here in northeast ohio and cleveland was one of my favorite baseball players got to uh wrote a book where he and uh kenny lofton actually did the forwards for it so that was pretty neat i know in basketball one of my all-time favorites was a guy named mark price and got to meet him as well so yeah i mean every now and then that comes about where you where you get to have that which is really cool Um, And I just want to throw this out there for the fans out there. Look back at it, but in the 70s, the Vikings were actually one of the best teams in football. I have to double-check here, but I'm almost positive they went to four Super Bowls. They didn't win any, but they made it there four times. I'm correct on that, right? Four times they made it but came up short. Yep.
1: Uh, 0 for 4. In fact, uh, I had a lot of friends that played on the teams in the 70s. Uh, And I went to the Super Bowl that was in New Orleans, but, you know, before the Superdome that was at uh, Tulane Stadium against the the Raiders, Mm -hmm. Uh, the the day before the Super Bowl, we were, you know, celebrating in the French Quarter. It was about 78 degrees, and the next day at the Super Bowl, that's how everybody had packed, the, the Super Bowl was cold, rainy, and about 38 degrees. It was one of the coldest games I was ever at because I didn't have any warm clothes.
0: Oh yeah, it's 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 you know it's funny now we see it in domes and these uh beautiful stadiums but back then it was not always the case. I remember there was there was a stretch there where they, they lost to um see Larry Zonka and the Dolphins the you know one of the first years in the Super Bowl next year came back and had to lose to Franco Harris and the Steelers. So yeah, I mean th- those Vikings teams didn't exactly have it easy once they got to the big dance. But
1: First Super Bowl they lost was to the uh, Hank Stram, Len Dawson, and the Kansas City Chiefs. Yep. And then you know they they spread the wealth around. They lost to the Steelers, the Dolphins, and the Raiders. <laughs>
0: yeah. So I wanted to ask you this then. You know um, we've had a ton of a ton of wrestlers on the show, a ton of personalities on the show, and it just it's astounding to me. Unfortunately, some of these guys are dead now, but it's astounding to me. To look at it. You know, Mr. Perfect, um, Rick Rude. Uh, Let's see here Joe, you know um, I just had him on the show last week I'm I'm drawing a blank here But so many different guys from Minneapolis Oh, Nikita Koloff, I'm sorry We spoke with Nikita last week So many different guys from the Minneapolis, Minnesota era Specifically Robbinsdale, Minnesota Got into professional wrestling How did you get into professional wrestling? I'm just curious Is it something about this area of the country?
1: Uh, Well, in, in terms of all the wrestlers You know, the AWA was so prominent here, and Vern Gagne went to, uh, you know, high school, I think it may have been Robbinsdale, here in the Twin Cities, lived in Mound, Minnesota, had his training camp here. So it was really a a prime focus in this area. And, you know, it, it was almost like the the best analogy now, Vince, you see so many like players in Major League Baseball coming from the Dominican Republic because baseball was so big in the Dominican Republic. That's what pro wrestling was here in the Twin Cities. So you had a, a lot of young guys that watched it. You know, uh, I mean, Thanksgiving night, Christmas night was just Kind of the fabric of the Twin Cities it shows at the St. Paul Civic Center that aspired to be wrestlers, and then you know with Vern's school right here, uh, it just worked out. And as far as uh, how I got into wrestling, uh, I was the sports director at the NBC affiliate in Rochester, Minnesota, uh, and. Here in the Twin Cities at that time, they had a huge celebrity golf and tennis tournament called Duff's. It was started by a bar owner and very civic-minded individual by the name of Joe Duffy. But when I say it was a huge celebrity tournament, I mean, they had the cast of M.A.S.H. in one year, they had the cast of Hill Street Blues, uh, Lonnie Anderson, James Garner, uh, then vice president, Gerald Ford. I mean, it was big time where they would sometimes draw 40, 50,000 spectators. Uh, and I got the opportunity, they did something called celebrity corner, which was basically a stage that was set up with a loudspeaker system and they had me interview a lot of the celebrities as, as, as they came through because that was really the one chance that the crowds could have a chance to to interact with them. Uh, you know, hopefully I would kind of ask the questions that the crowd was wondering. And one of the people I happened to interview was Vern Gagne. And, you know, I was a not a huge wrestling fan, but very familiar with All-Star Wrestling. So I was able to, you know, ask him some poignant and on-topic questions. And then that night at the, you know, dinner for the celebrities, the committee people, the VIPs, <clears throat> Vern came up and engaged me in a conversation, wanted to know who I was, where I worked, and, you know, I told him all that and had a nice talk, and that was it. <clears throat> and then uh, <clears throat> about two weeks later, he called the television station in Rochester, got a hold of me and wanted to know when I was going to be back in the Twin Cities, and I said, I come up every weekend. Uh, I spend every weekend and. <clears throat> And the following Saturday, he arranged, and we had lunch, and we talked, and he offered me the job to come work for the AWA. So it was truly being in the the right place at the right time.
0: Yeah, that happens so often, too. I mean, it really does. When when you get that first big break, it just happens to be the right place, right time. Sometimes you know when when talent meets luck. Who you know in your stretch there from about eighty three to eighty six. Who were some of the most talented performers that you worked with in the A.W.A.? You know, in the ring, calling the matches, but also interviewing and just being around them. Who do you say maybe some of the top three or four people that you're around? Because that was a time there where there began to be that exodus where people were leaving for WWF. Yeah,
1: um, you know, Hulk was there when I was there. In fact... It was Hulk that gave me the the nickname Killer Ken. So, Hulk, you know, Bobby Heenan, Nick Bockwinkle, Mad Dog Vashon, The Crusher, you know, Larry Zabisco was there. Andre came through, was there a a couple months, kind of worked the the battle royals around the territory. So, it it was some of the the biggest names uh, in wrestling. And, you know, I was <clears throat> so fortunate that besides the television, <clears throat> I worked full time in the office um, and Black Jack Lanza <clears throat> was working in the office. <clears throat> so we really became, you know, good friends. And I think Jack kind of passed the word amongst the boys that, you know, I was OK and, and, and was a, <clears throat> a, a good guy Um, so, you know, here I was lucky enough to, to be able to learn the business, you know, from a Bobby Heenan, a Bockwinkle, Crusher, Mad Dog, Lanza. I mean, you know, and we would still, besides the big towns, they would run a lot of towns, you know, just in the upper Midwest where we would drive. So, you know, I would get to spend hours in, in the car, with these guys and just listening and, and learning and, you know, could could ask questions and learn about the philosophy and, and and how they put together matches and things. I mean, it was, uh, you know, amazing.
0: Now, could you tell in that brief stretch there, again, you know, three or four years, right around 83 through 86, it just happened to be that, happened to be the exact time that, um, McMahon, Vince McMahon and the, the WWF at the time began to expand, buy out territories, and really kind of monopolize the entire wrestling world for themselves. While you were with the AWA, could you sense in a way that maybe Vern was falling a little bit behind the times as McMahon was going for more like a Hollywood rock and wrestling type thing, where, you know, Vern Gagne stuck to the nuts and bolts of pro wrestling?
1: Oh, there was, you know, no question. Uh, And it was pretty easy to see at the time, Vince, that Vince McMahon had realized the revenue that could be generated from television, from advertising, from secondary marketing, where that kind of became the, the WWF focus in terms of launching National where while Vern had an amazing territory, amazing talent, he still looked at television as basically an infomercial for trying to sell tickets for the house shows. Um, So I, I, I think that was pretty easy to see that, you know, Vince McMahon was kind of looking towards the future while Verne was, um, I I don't want to say stuck in the past, but still believed in the current format of the AWA uh, and was also a little bit uh, reticent to, to kind of share secondary marketing revenues, t-shirts and hats and things like that, uh, with the guys, because in, in, in Vern's mind, without him, they wouldn't be anybody or be able to, you know, have people want to own shirts or hats. And he felt that that should be his revenue. So yeah, you, you could, you could see it, it coming. um, and, you know, even back then, if you think about it, Vince's <clears throat> TV was being done uh, every three to four weeks in Poughkeepsie, New York, but at an arena-style venue where Vern was still doing the Matches, you know, you might get 75 people, you know, in, in the television studio. So that the, the look, the philosophy just began to be, you know, 180 degrees difference.
0: So eventually, you know, you, you leave, you decide to leave the AWA and go to the WWF There is a great story that I've heard you tell um, in the past. And, uh, you know, I'll let, I'll let you try to tell it again. What exactly was the interview with Vince McMahon like? Did he put you on the spot right away, and did he really make you shave your mustache?
1: Um, yes, yes, yeah, yes to all of those. <laughs> um, and, and you know, to to clear it up, uh, I made the decision uh, to leave the AWA. Um, <clears throat> Interestingly enough, the the Wrestle Rock <clears throat> was. My last uh, appearance in, in the AWA and the WrestleRock Rumble video just will not die. Uh, but there had been no communication between me and Vince McMahon uh, or any from the anybody with the WWF about coming to work there. Um, and then, after the week after WrestleRock. When word got out that I had left, they arranged to bring me out to New York. Uh, I flew out, and the way the interview process worked, uh, I, not in any particular order, but I, I, I met with Terry Garvin for a while, uh, I met with George Scott, you know, the head booker for a while, uh, I met with Pat Patterson, you know, some of the senior uh, Arnie Scolan, the <clears throat> senior WWF officials. And I think they kind of communicated amongst themselves and to Vince that, hey, you know, we think this guy is, you know, a good guy and will probably fit in. <clears throat> and then eventually I was shown into Vince's office. Uh, we spent, oh, I'd say an hour and a half together back and forth. But in the first three, four minutes, he said to me, tell me about your mustache. And I kind of looked at him like, "Uh, I don't understand. (laughs) I I mean, I wouldn't try to be a wise guy. I was like, what do you want me to tell you? I mean, he said, he wanted to know when and why I first grew it, how long I had it, if I was overly attached to it. And, you know, I during the discussion, uh, you know, for the few minutes, I said, I get the feeling you are not big on mustaches. And he said, to tell you the truth, I hate facial hair. <laughs> and he just looked at me. And I said, so I I guess if where this is going, if everything worked out to both our satisfaction, would I shave the mustache? Yes, I would shave it. And that was it. Never said another word. We probably talked for, you know, at least over an hour. Um, He wanted to know, you know, what I was making with Vern. I told him. And, boy, and he said, boy, he really is a cheap uh, expletive. And I kind of laughed, and Vince said, you know, I appreciate you. He he said, I knew what you were getting. And he said, I appreciate the fact you were honest about it. That tells me something. We talked a little more, and then uh, Vince said, well, let me ask you this. If I would double your salary When would you be available? And I kind of looked at my watch. I remember I I said, well, it's 325. We can round it up to 330. (laughs) And he laughed. He didn't say a word, looked at me for maybe 30 to 45 seconds, opened his top desk door, pulled out a razor, a can of shaving cream, and said bathroom right through that door. So that, that's all true, and I, I shaved it right there.
0: That is great. That is absolutely great. I can picture the whole thing.
1: When, when, when I walked out, Vince looked at me and he said, you really showed me something. I said, what's that? I said, my bare lip. He said, no, you back up what you say. You'll start Saturday in Detroit. That's and that, that's
0: how it all went down. That's incredible, and it's a good segue to my next question. So, you know... Speaking of Detroit, that's exactly where I was going. Technically, Pontiac, Michigan. You know, it's it's a WrestleMania everybody still talks about to today. You know, well, I don't even know what it is now. 33 years later, people are still talking about WrestleMania three. What kind of pride did it give you going from the AWA to the WWF, knowing that you were now working for a company that was able to fill up a 93,000-seat arena?
1: Um, you know, the... I, I mean, it, it was huge, um not only me personally, but what Vince had been able to do for pro wrestling. I mean, he took it mainstream. It it became the in thing to do. But right from the, you know, my first few days, they were just so organized with, you know, pre-production meetings, Where they would dot every i and and cross every t, Um, and and the fact that you know Vince knew and and you know communicated and built storylines that probably nine months before you know WrestleMania three at the Silverdome, he knew what the matches were going to be. You know he started just showing little hints, building you know the the Hulk Andre feud, Um, you know, building the Macho Man and and Ricky the Dragon, it was just, it it was so organized and focused uh, was the the big difference, and, you know, again, certainly, um, you know, what, what it did you know, for the business. I mean, uh, if if you think about it, if you had gone even to any of the wrestlers themselves, you know, in in 78, 79, uh, even 82, 83, and said, you know, in a few years, you guys are going to draw 93,000 people they would have thought you should be committed, that you were certifiable. You'd lost your mind. But you know, there was.
0: That's incredible. What were um, you know? Who were some of the stars in the in the WOEF that you got to work with that you didn't actually cross paths with in the AWA? Because again, there was a lot of big names in the WWF Jesse, the Body, Ventura, Hulk Hogan, Iron Sheik, Andre the Giant, on and on down the line. But. You know, that, that had worked for AWA and then WWF, But there was there was definitely some, I don't want to say new talents, but definitely people that you've probably seen for the first time. Who really stuck out to you with the WWF um, that you didn't have before?
1: Well, certainly, you know, the macho man, Randy Savage, and, and Miss Elizabeth, uh, even though he had been here before, uh, but I had never crossed paths with him, uh, you know, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Rowdy Roddy Piper, uh, George the Animal Uh, Steele—I mean, these were you know just huge names. Um, Yeah, I remember the 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 first day I I started doing interviews, and you know I'm looking around, the guys just sitting in in the interview room, kind of going, "You got to be kidding me!"
0: (laughs) Just. Just amazing. Was there ever a time around Macho Man that he you kind of felt nervous around him because he was so intense, especially with Elizabeth in the room that you just didn't want to. I don't know, maybe like look at her for more than a split second. Like, was it really that? Was he really that intense all the time? Um,
1: pretty much, yes. Um, not not so much, you know, in the interviews because if you think about it. Um, She didn't even come on for a lot of the interviews. Um, It was usually just Randy. So most times she wasn't even in the interview room. Uh, And it was like anything um, as, I guess I would say far more, as Randy got comfortable with me he would kind of involve me a little bit more. I mean, Randy was such a good talker that, you know, with guys like Randy and, and, and Roddy Roddy Piper, you know, I would start the interview, plug whatever city matches, things like that, bring them in, and, and pretty much let them go. Um, you know, I, I never, uh, you know, following uh, Gene when he was taking time off, I mean, his timing and, and some of his, you know, comedic facial expressions and things um, it, at times would sometimes upstage the talent, n- n- not meaning to do so, but he was just that good. Uh, so I was always really cognizant of never trying to upstage or draw attention away from some of the big stars during the interview. And in, I'll admit, Vince, sometimes uh, to the detriment that I probably should have had in in some instances more of a reaction, but I was just very cognizant of not drawing attention away. But, you know, Randy, as he got more comfortable, you know, when he was going, he would, some, you know, sometimes look at me and, and just pose a rhetorical question, just, you know, kind of his way of acknowledging, hey, you know, you're here with me. But uh, although one time um, I had been in a town and was uh, flew, it was had to commute. Uh, Change planes in Omaha from where I was um, to the next town. So I landed and went to, you know, the next gate. Uh, You know, I'm just sitting in the gate area, and I look over, and there's Elizabeth standing there. And, you know, I, I think Randy had either gone to get something or gone to the men's room or whatever, but, I mean, this was somebody I knew. I didn't happen to see, you know, anybody else, you know, from WWF. So I just went over, Liz, hi, how are you? And we started, like, just talking for a couple minutes. Uh, and all of a sudden, Randy comes over and, you know, almost went ballistic because I was just standing there talking to Liz. And I finally said, Randy, it's me. I just you She was the only person in the gate area I knew. And then he kind of backed off or, or calmed down a little. But, yeah, he was, um, you know, certainly uh, overly protective, I, I guess you could say.
0: No, I understand. Um, you know, so so looking towards that, too, a couple more questions for you. And thank you again for taking the time to talk with us today. Um want to throw this out here, too. So during that stretch, eventually Vince McMahon um, decides to take the belt off of Hulk Hogan and transition it into a tournament that, again, Randy Savage wins. Ironically, enough, the guy we are just talking about. Was that a surprise to a lot of people to take the belt off of Hogan like they did? Or was it just something that, you know, the general course of wrestling time, someone else has to wear it for a little while?
1: Um, the, the, the truth is, you know, I, I don't know. I wasn't that much on the inside. But I, I'm guessing... It, it came as a surprise to a lot of people, um, but I think it, it could have been, um, I, I mean, Vince was, was just so good at, at uh, planning and, and the people around him, it may have come down to simply that sometimes you can make more money with somebody chasing the belt than having the belt. I think it it could have been as as simple as that Um, or maybe, you know, it has proved to be the case with with a lot of people down the line. Um, Vince may also have, you know, been worried that Hulk was getting so big um, that he might be getting too big in terms of the power he might have. So it, it it could have been you know either one of those reasons, but that's Vince just completely my supposition. You know I I don't know the answer to that one.
0: Um, you know two more questions left here, and I, I appreciate the time. Uh, so two of my favorite things coming up. We, we,
1: we, we, I mean, at some point we are going to talk about the fact that uh, your idol Jim Tomey, hit his 400th major league home run in a Twins uniform, right? <laughs>
0: I knew you were gonna throw that in there, and I, you know, I gotta look you, back on it.
1: You, you had really set the table for that one, and I thought, well, I'll just wait till it's time for that course.
0: <laughs> and I think he was. I gotta go back and look because um, I don't know if he went to the Twins in 'o five or not. I am not sure if he did. He might have waited a year, but I am not the Twins. The White Sox, when they won the series, the World Series in 'o five, um, I'll tell you what, though, it sucks. He, being being from Cleveland, we just got so used to people leaving. As sad as that sounds, uh, especially in baseball, it started with Albert Bell in 96, then uh, Manny Ramirez in 2000, Tomey in '02. We just got so conditioned to our heroes leaving that it just you either had a chance afterwards to say, okay, we're going to be better towards this person or we're going to cheer for him. And when Albert Bell left, I was mad. When Manny Ramirez left, I was mad. And I didn't root for him. But I loved Jim Tomey so much that when he left, I was like, you know what, I'm going to root for this guy wherever he goes. you a big baseball fan? Huge.
1: You know used to come to my house to watch uh, Monday Night Raw and Monday Nitro? Who? Kirby Puckett.
0: Oh, wow. One of my all-time, one of my all-time favorites.
1: His, his father-in-law was a good friend of mine. Kirby loved wrestling, and he, he would come over so he could ask me, and then I'd kind of tell him what was really going on.
0: <laughs> That's incredible. Let me tell you something, too. Kirby Puckett, when I was a kid... I'm 38 years old, so I'm not, like, super old, but well, I'm 38. So he he was a big deal when I was a kid, okay? And his batting stance was one of the most pure batting stances that there was. And my dad taught me how to swing a bat like Kirby Puckett. We would watch Kirby Puckett swing, and I would mold my swing after him. He was one of the most – he was one of those guys that you looked at him, Kirby Puckett, and you, you didn't think, like, oh, he's this great athlete. But then you watched him play, and you're like, man, this guy plays out of his mind for, for how he was built.
1: Yeah, yeah, he, uh, <clears throat> short, and, well, when he first came up, he was just short, but he was pretty muscular, and as his career progressed, he became kind of short and stocky, but his his talent, you know, never diminished, I mean, uh, all anybody has to do is, is take a look at uh, game uh, 6 of 87 and uh, not the home run, but before that, that catch he made that mm-hmm. uh, if he doesn't get elevated and catch it up uh, in front of the plexiglass, there would not have been a game 7. No. So, yeah, he was he was an amazing uh,
0: amazing uh, athlete. Yeah, I agree. thats I'm glad you brought him up. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's just one of those things. Uh, I grew up in such a great generation, Ken. It's I look at the football players, and we'll get back to wrestling here in a split second, but I look at the football players I grew up with, Dan Marino, John Elway, Joel Montana, Jerry Rice, Emmett Smith, Barry Sanders, the whole, I mean, just a whole lot of them, just amazing. Baseball, same thing. Roger Clemens, Ken Griffey Jr., Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds, Randy Johnson, just all of them. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, I still watch sports today like I did when I was a kid, but just that generation was just so good to me. I can, you know, just bless to grow up. During that time, let alone basketball with Jordan and and Bird and Thomas and everybody else. Just simply amazing. But speaking of which, so you you grew up watching these legends. And whatever the sport is, whether it's pro wrestling, whether it's baseball, basketball, we all have our favorites. Well, there was this guy, and I'm probably going to butcher his name, but I want to say Paul Elperstein, I believe was his name. Comes up with this concept called the American Wrestling Federation and took all these legends from WWF and WCW and put them together, and they did like a round system for the, for the matches. But to me, it was like the greatest thing, but it failed miserably. What were your memories of working with that, and why do you think it never really caught on? Uh,
1: my, my memories were great. Uh, in fact, somebody just uh, a few weeks ago asked me, uh, of all the federations I, I worked with, uh, which ones were the most fun that, you know, I, I just really enjoyed. Um, you know, and even though WWF was amazing, I mean, there were a, the, the travel and, and long days, you know, would, would take a lot of the fun out of it. Uh, there were a lot of days that it was just really hard, long hours. Uh, but I've said uh, when I did the LPWA, when I did the AWF were probably the most fun, uh, I had. Uh, I I agree with you. Um, I I never understood the theory behind the round system. Um, you know, knowing you're uh, a wrestling fan, you know, back in those days, <clears throat> the, the psychology that that went into the moves <clears throat> and matches and and would build through a, a crescendo of, of a false finish or, or the finish and get the crowd really involved and invested in the match. And all of a sudden, every three minutes you stop. It was like, I, I, I never understood that. But I think the, the biggest reason was back then, syndication in television, You know, there weren't national cable deals floating. The syndication was just so expensive uh, that, you know, Paul Alperstein and and the the partners he had just didn't have the financial wherewithal uh, to sustain it. Uh, and, And, you know, having to buy TV time, you know, when... The AWA was in its heyday. The majority of the shows were, were on a barter system where a, a television station would air your show and say there was, uh, you know, 12 60 second commercial availabilities within the hour. The station would get six to sell and, and you would get six to sell. So it kind of was, even though it was viewed as an infomercial to sell tickets for house shows, it was still a minor revenue source. And then when Vince went national, he started paying for his TV time. He was buying his time. So television stations were certainly, I mean, they were in the business to make money. It's like, okay, we were carrying the AWA on a barter, and now Vince is giving us this guarantee for the hour. So for Vern, AWF, you know, any of the other territories, what at one point was, if not a break-even, but probably a minor revenue stream, now became a huge expense, And I think it was financially more than anything that, that caused the, the demise of the AWF and some of the other territories. I mean, you're right. AWF had, had had great, great talent. Uh Sargent Slaughter and, and Tito Santana were, were the, the the primary bookers. Uh, talent storylines had pretty good production, but it just cost so much to be on the air in that time frame, still, you know, in in the mid nineties, that it was just financially not sustainable.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I remember all that. I, I remember loving it. I remember, you know, the, the one thing that stuck out was all the old WDF guys like Greg the Hammer Valentine, and like you said, Tito and Santana was the champion. You know, really the only thing I disagreed with, like you said, was the round system, and there was, there was one time where Tito Santana lost the belt and then in, from Tabo, Cowboy Bob Orton Jr., and then in the same episode, where he won it back, and I thought that was kind of... I didn't really agree with that booking, you know? It, this is... To me, it seemed rushed, and it, didn't, it made little sense, but really, besides that, like... You know, overall as a product, I, I really did enjoy it.
1: Maybe um, <laughs> it was just a precursor to the 24-7 championship, yeah. which can about change hands five times in a 20-minute span. I,
0: I guess. I guess so. So, you know.
1: They were they were just way ahead of the game.
0: <laughs> they might have been. They might have been. I think Lord Alfred Hayes was on the announce team, too. So, yep. th- definitely a cool thing. And, uh Elna O Casey was part of that I mean they, they definitely had the names they they had the names yeah, to make absolutely. it
1: work absolutely and in uh, uh, I I think it I, I don't know the reason but like uh, I remember in Orlando it was doing a 2.5 rating I mean it, it was doing well in all the markets but
0: it just Cost too much to to keep it on the air. So looking back at everything, including your time with American Gladiators on their live tour, what is your what is your happiest memory of working in the business?
1: Oh uh, boy, um, it'd be hard to to pin down. But I I think um, it would it was probably. Um, as I alluded to that that first day uh doing interviews with WWF uh just looking at all the talent in that room and you know looking down at at, at my sport coat with a WWF logo on it thinking to myself and I'm part of this you got to be kidding me <laughs> so that that you know probably would would be the, the, the one um, because back then and, and even today, I mean, WWF, WWE is still the pinnacle. Uh, I mean, that's that's the top of the mountain.
0: You know, one last bonus question for you just because you answered all these great and you're a fellow baseball fan, so thank you for talking a little baseball there too. Thanks. But um, one last bonus question, and you are one of the few people, and I mean few people that we've ever had on our show Who's qualified to answer this? Who do you think today is probably the the best second generation or even third generation wrestler currently competing? You know, you got guys like you know Randy Orton, he's a third generation, um, you know Natty Nightheart, you know the, the the daughter of Jim Naval. you know who are some of the the best. And and I say this because you saw their parents perform, you know their fathers, and, not, and now you're seeing the children. Who are some of the very best?
1: Really want me? Really wanted to make me feel old, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and it was funny. Um, and in March, actually, the weekend before the the pandemic reared its its ugly head, uh, I was uh, doing a, a signing uh for team art promotions I was at the big event in, in New York and had a chance to to spend time with, with uh Bob orton and, and we talked uh, uh, you know about his career and, and talked about Randy's um you know on seeing everything i I would probably pick uh Randy orton I mean um he's old school enough where, where you can see, in a lot of his matches, uh, he's still trying to, to use psychology. Uh, even in, in some of the high risk, he, he doesn't overly telegraph it ahead of time. Um, he's got the look. Uh, you know, his promos are good. Um, so I guess I, I would probably go with, with Randy Orton, uh, if I had to to you know pick one, um, but you know certainly uh, in the you know the divas division, uh, you know Natalia, I, I, I mean she certainly is following in the Anvil's uh, footsteps. I mean she just keeps you know coming and coming and 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 coming. Uh, so you know she's great. Uh, as well uh, and I mean it, it's funny sometimes it, if you catch her profile uh, you know to me having worked with uh, Jim so much uh, she looks a lot like her dad um, so you know those are the two that, that you mentioned but I guess I would, I would have to say uh, Randy
0: you know and it's interesting to me too not only are those two great but I look at it and a lot of people don't even realize this but Bray Wyatt I mean, he's the son of Mike Rotunda, who, you know, two totally different kinds of wrestlers. They're performers with the way Mike Rotunda was, and now the character of Bray Wyatt. It's just amazing. And like I said, because I'm old enough, too, to remember it. You know, I'm not going to lie. So I'm old enough to remember watching them as fans as a kid and now covering them as an adult, as a journalist, and seeing, you know, the the father-son or the father-daughter. It it really is special. So I just wanted to let you, uh, you know... Uh, finish out the interview here. Is there any uh, you know people you want to say hello to, or any shout outs, or anything at all that you wanted to plug any upcoming appearances before we call it a wrap today?
1: Uh, unfortunately, like everyone else, uh, I, I was going to be at uh, the uh, Blue Fez Hall of Fame uh, induction uh, in uh, Iowa in July. That was canceled. I was going to be at uh, the gathering in uh, August this year back uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, that was canceled, so, so no uh, upcoming appearances. Uh, if, if you don't mind, I, I can hit uh, some of your competition in that uh, on uh, Wednesday nights live at uh, 8.30 Central, 9.30 Eastern, uh, I've been co-hosting a podcast with uh, Bruce Word. On Vok Nation, uh, so you know that's been fun, keeping me a little bit more uh, engaged. And uh, there's uh, if if you go to prowrestlingtees dot com and, and search. Uh, Killer Ken, they came up with a, a great uh, Killer Ken t-shirt that uh, I, I really like because uh, they, they included Vince. Uh, a lot of the old territories we talked about, uh, WWF, AWA, AWF, LPWA, is, is all mentioned uh, on that uh, shirt, which has is, is been uh, selling, you know, pretty well through uh, the Vox Nation page on, on pro wrestling tees uh, so that and uh, make sure everyone you know keeps turning you know, listening into to on sports
0: that's awesome thank you sir and uh, I'll talk to you again and, and next time I'll probably call you and we'll talk some baseball once it's up and running sound good
1: uh, absolutely
0: Vince anytime All right, thanks Ken you have a great day you too Bye now. so that was Ken Resnick AEWA legend um Absolutely just uh, just incredible, to, to say the least. So, with that being said, i obviously clearly WWF legend, and uh, it was great to talk AWF as well, to be honest with you. I love the AWF. So that was fun. Guys, have any ideas for the show? Let us know. Email me, coachvin14 at yahoo.com. Everybody, stay safe. We're going to get through this together. It's almost over, I promised. Eh, maybe. We'll see. Have a great day.